Welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we bring you the full hour-long speaker series talk with Bob Schieffer, former CBS News anchor and host of Face the Nation, and the new Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow here at the Shorenstein Center. Over the next hour, you'll hear Bob's thoughts on the effects of money in politics, his views on the candidates running for president, including Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, and how the current presidential campaign compares to others in recent history. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Acting Director of the Shorenstein Centre. So, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson, uh, Acting Director of the, of the Shorenstein Centre. And uh, so, Bob Schieffer uh, is the Walter Shorenstein Fellow at the Shorenstein Centre. Uh, this is a relatively new position. Uh, Bob is the second holder uh, of the position, and we're just delighted that he's going to be here this semester and next semester and the fall semester of next year. So, and it's not a coincidence that that happens to bridge uh, the presidential election campaign, uh, and uh, he's going to be coming up twice a semester, uh, and at each of these semesters, including today, uh, or at each of these visits, uh, at least once, he'll be talking about. Uh, uh, the election campaign and there are a few people sort of better positioned uh, to do this than Bob. Uh, as many of you know he's moderated uh, presidential debates, three of them, um, the general election debates including uh, one of the 2012 debates between um, Barack Obama and, uh, and John Kerry. He's covered every major beat in Washington, the State Department, Congress, uh, the Pentagon, the White House, uh, interviewed every president since uh, Nixon, uh, and of course uh, anchored the CBS uh, weekend uh, news for quite a number of years, and then uh, was the host of, on Sunday mornings, uh, CBS's Face the Nation. And uh, we're just delighted to have you here, Bob. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Uh, I want to talk about the campaign, about where we are and kind of how we got to where we are, because if, if I were going to uh, title this, uh, I, I think it would be something, that, and that's not an original phrase, but something on, along the lines of the chickens have, have now come home to roost. <laughs> I, I think what has been brewing in American politics has finally come about. And I mean, when we look at a Congress that remains in perpetual gridlock, that's the main metaphor uh, for American politics today. Uh, I'm going to argue and uh, my feeling is this is not the problem it is a symptom of the problem of what's happened in american politics and that is that we have had a complete breakdown in our electoral system it's not about to happen i believe it has already happened and what we're seeing today is the result of that and uh, i i'm probably a little better at talking about what has already happened and trying to predict what uh, is going to happen. So I want to go back in time just a little bit and talk about my when I first came to know about politics and the first politician that uh, came into my consciousness. It was 1948, the year that Truman was running against Dewey. I was 11 years old. And while I suppose that was a big story in the rest of the world, in our neighborhood, the big news was 
that Lyndon Johnson, who had been a congressman, was running for the United States Senate. And he was coming to the vacant lot where we played baseball out on the northwest side of Fort Worth. And it was a big deal in the community. And the reason it was such a big deal is that we heard he was coming in a helicopter. And we had <laughs> never seen a helicopter. So my dad took me and everybody else's dad in the neighborhood took, took their kids. The whole community came down to this vacant lot. Uh, we didn't know really what to expect. And then all of a sudden, up there in the sky, here was this airplane with no wings making all of this noise. And on this bullhorn, we could hear, this is your candidate for the United States, Lyndon, uh, Senate Lyndon B. Johnson. I'll be down at that moment. We knew how David must have felt when he realized the burning bush was talking to him. We didn't know if this was a politician. We didn't know this was God. We didn't know what this was. And our first reaction was we were, we were absolutely terrified. And then this thing lands in this great uh, cloud of, of dust. Lyndon Johnson gets off this airplane and proceeds to make a, a barn-burning kind of speech, the kind of speech that politicians used to make when they had to be entertaining and fun to keep and hold a crowd. And he made that kind of a speech, and at the end of the speech, he hadn't even taken his hat off, he took off his hat, threw it into the crowd, <laughs> waved goodbye, got on the helicopter, one <laughs> moment, I was 11 years old, and I can still every remember every moment of that day. I later told this story to Jake Pickle, uh, who was the uh, person who had worked in Lyndon Johnson's office. In those days, he spent half a day as the Capitol policeman and the other half of the day as Johnson's aide. He ran for Johnson's congressional seat and was elected, and I told Jake that story one day, and he said, oh yes, I, he said, I was there, he said, that was my job in the campaign, and I said, what do you mean? He said, I was the hat catcher, and I said, what? <laughs> he said, let me tell you something, <laughs> Linda Johnson was the tightest person on the face of the earth, he wasn't going to waste a hat on a campaign stop, and he said, so my job in the campaign was to drive to wherever the helicopter was going to land, get on the front row, when Johnson saw me, he threw that hat to me. I took the hat, ran around to the back of the helicopter, met him at the door, he put on the hat, and then I flew away. I get my car and drive as fast as I could to the next stop. And Johnson would sometimes make uh, as many as seven or eight stops a day uh, while, while uh, campaigning that summer. And, and of course, he was elected. This, this was the election he won and became known as Landslide Lyndon because, you know, remember he won that uh, first seat by 90, 98 votes in a statewide election. They found the votes and it turned out in, in uh, Duval County and it turned out that the people in Duval County, amazingly, according to the voter records, had voted in alphabetical order. It <laughs> 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 went to court. The votes were accepted in London. Johnson became the United States Senator. And you know what, all of the things that happened after that. But you know, I, I like to tell that story so much. And number one, because I just like to hear it myself. <laughs> you know? But I tell that story because it is such a contrast to the elections of that day and how we elected our candidates.
and how we go about it today. To start with, every single person who had anything to do with bringing Lyndon Johnson to Fort Worth and to the vacant lot where we played baseball in those days, every single person who had something to do with that did it for free. And they all had real jobs. Some of them worked at the bank, some of them worked at what we call the bomber plant out on the west side of Fort Worth, uh, some of them belonged to the labor unions, some of them were small businessmen. They all had real jobs and they were all part of the community. And they came together as they did for all politicians as we did it in those days because they had an interest in him getting elected, uh, because they thought it was in their interest for him to get elected. Everybody came uh, with, with very understandable motives to that. Now here's what's happened. We have taken what people used to do for free and have developed a political system where we have outsourced it, all of those things that people used to do for free, to people who charge enormous sums of money to do what all of those people did for nothing. Uh, we now uh, have created what has become this enormous industry that's grown up around our politics. We used to say that uh, campaigning uh, and, and elections were the intervals between governing. What we have created now is a system where governing is the interval between campaigns. The last election cost seven billion, that's billion with a B dollars. The last presidential election cost $2.6 billion. Each of the candidates spent over a billion dollars. A lot of people got rich. A lot of people are getting rich. You realize that when, when you hire the fundraisers that are now required to raise these enormous sums of money to hire all these people to do what people used to do for free, all of those fundraisers take a commission. They generally get about 5% of whatever, whatever they raise. Uh, the people that become the campaign managers and consultants, uh, all of that's negotiable, of course, but they generally make anywhere from ten to $20,000 a month uh, to do this kind of work. And then you have the pollsters, the people who make the campaign ads, uh, all of that, uh, that are also making uh, these enormous uh, sums of money. Once again, to do what people used to do because they just had an interest in government and, and seeing someone get elected. Money has always been a part of American politics, but now it is the driving force in American politics. And what I will argue is that we're not moving forward in this, but we're going backwards. Here's a little fact that I ran across uh, this year as I was just uh, preparing for coming up here to Harvard. By 1975, after the financial campaign abuses of the Nixon administration, something like 36 people and corporations had been convicted uh, of, of campaign of finance violations and other violations. Not, not indicted, but convicted of these various uh, violations. All of the things that those people were convicted of with the exception of breaking into the Watergate Hotel, are now legal. All of those things are now legal. 
secret donations, unlimited donations, all of the things that people went to jail for are now legal because of a series of uh, laws that have, have softened our campaign finance laws and our election laws and then the latest uh, court rulings. The, what we have now, basically, is no campaign laws and no uh, finance laws. I mean, you can just do whatever you want to do, and that's what's happening. We now have the super PACs. Jeb Bush has raised $100 million. Uh, Ted Cruz, one person has given Ted Cruz $11 million. Another has given him $6 million. Eight people have given Hillary Clinton at least $1 million. I was thinking about it last night. <clears throat> I was talking to some people that were involved in the last campaign, and I thought, what if you were a person and you decided, I want to really help a candidate, I'm going to give them $100,000. What are you going to get for $100,000? <laughs> You're going to be about 33rd in line to get in to see whoever you gave the money to. If somebody's giving him $11 million and somebody else is giving him $6 million and eight people have given a million dollars or plus, you're going to be way at the back of the line. You might get to see the, the deputy chief of staff or something, but it's going to be hard for, for you to get in ahead of these other folks uh, to even get in and see the person. So the money has, has overwhelmed everything and changed everything. But the professionalization of what used to be an amateur sport, every time it reached another level where the money became more important, it has put a distance between the candidate and the people he is being elected to serve. You know, when Lyndon Johnson came to our neighborhood, we not only got to see him, he got to see us. He got to see what we looked like. He got to see how we were dressed. He got to see if we were white or black or, or brown. He got a good sense, a personal sense, of the people that he was trying to get their vote. The candidates today very seldom do public rallies anymore. It just isn't cost effective. They might do it when they're trying to film a television commercial or something like that. And most of what they know about the people they represent is data provided to them by professional pollsters, uh, by focus groups that are arranged, and by polling to determine what it is uh, that, that the people uh, want and, and, and what it is that they, they think they need. Uh, one has to raise so much money, if you're running for Congress, for example, to get elected the first time around that you're forced to sign off with so many interest groups before you get to Washington, that once you're there, your, your positions are set in stone. You, you can't compromise, and that's what's happened here to our, to our legislative body. We've created a legislative body that cannot compromise. In order to raise the money, you have to be very specific about what it is that you will do for a person if you're elected. And what this has done, it has driven people to the extremes of both parties. You know, when I was growing up, we had liberal Democrats and conservative Democrats. We had liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans. And those people in the middle were the ones where the compromises were all made. Now, we don't have a middle anymore. There are no more 
uh, conservative Democrats. There are no more liberal Republicans. And the reason for that is because of the ways they, they have to raise money. And the way you raise money today, let's, let's just say you're going to run for down there in Fort Worth. And so you went to the Goat Ropers Association. And there is such a thing. And, and you said, now, Goat Ropers, I want to tell you something. If an issue comes up, uh, I will be glad. I will give my best thinking to it. I'll be familiar with it. I'll give you a sound hearing. Well, you wouldn't raise a dime if you went to somebody with that kind of a fundraising approach. What you have to say is, I want to tell you, Goat Roper, something. No matter what happens, I'm your man. I will do, I will represent the Goat Ropers. So once you get that done, and then you talk to 15 different groups, and you're telling all of them the same thing, by the time you get to Washington, if you do get elected, you can't, you can't bend. And with computers and all of that, and uh, uh, today, if you come one inch off the position that you used when you were, when you were running, uh, then, then uh, you know, you're going to be attacked. And so, time and time again, the purpose of many of the people who have now come to Washington is to uh, raise enough money to get elected the second time and to prevent getting a primary opponent in the next election. I, I would argue that when your goal is not to have a primary opponent, you're going to have a Congress that doesn't get very much done. I've looked at a lot of history books and I don't find many politicians that got in there because they didn't have a primary opponent. Uh, the ones that make the history books, of course, are the ones who, who get something done. But now it is getting harder and harder to do that. And so as we look at this at this campaign season and what, what we have going on today, we are seeing a collection of candidates that might not have gotten much attention in days gone by. But now, you have to have the money to get the attention. You have to have the celebrity to get the attention. And the other part of it is, serious people, more and more of them, are saying, I just don't want to spend my time that way. I, I can do better doing something else. And so the good people many times are not running. There are still good people in politics. I want to think that most of the people there uh, are there for the right reasons. But it's a different group of people than we saw uh, seeking public office in the past. And the reason for that is because of the this difficult way we now have of, uh, of electing people that, that fill these uh, offices of, of trust. Uh, we are at a point now where the government has all but just come to a halt. You know, Ronald Reagan used to talk about the shining city on a hill. The shining city on a hill has become the city where nothing works anymore. All of the agencies that we used to put our trust in and take for granted uh, are not working. The IRS is in a mess. The Veterans Administration is in a mess. The EPA has caused one of the greatest uh, environmental disasters out in Colorado. Uh, of, of recent times, and it took the director of the EPA three days to get out to Colorado. I mean, what, what, what was, what was she working on that was so important? She couldn't go out there and see what, what was their fault? Uh, 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 something done uh, based on, uh, on, on, on bad planning, and that probably uh, could have been avoided. But over and over, 
we're seeing these things happen. So to me, it's not surprising that somebody comes on the scene here and says, oh, I can fix everything. You know, I, I'm, uh, I'm a good deal maker. I, I can take care of that. Uh, and so you have Donald Trump, and then you have someone like Ben Carson, who is expressing the same kind of frustrations, but is doing it in a much softer and, and for want of a better word, polite way. Uh, and, and so you have these two outsiders that have suddenly emerged. Uh, I think what Donald Trump has done here is he's made a very accurate list of all the things uh, people are frustrated about, uh, or upset about, or are disgusted with. Uh, and he's made a list and he, he has enunciated that in very plain language. Uh, and, and I think that, that is what has resonated. Uh, my problem with Donald Trump at this point is he hasn't proposed one realistic solution to any problem. And it seems to me that sooner or later he's going to have to do that. But as of right now, he's leading the polls. I think it's conceivable he could get the Republican nomination. Uh, I also think it's conceivable that if he doesn't, he, he might reconsider running as a third party uh, candidate. Uh, and here's the other part. We see much the same thing happening on the Democratic side, where you have Hillary Clinton, who's raised an enormous amount of money, uh, has hired all these consultants. I think up until this point, they've raised 19, uh, spent $19 million, and she keeps going down. And now her campaign organization has announced she's going, going to be uh, more humorous, and, <laughs> and, and she's going to uh, show uh, her, her heartfelt feelings. And then, in, 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 a, in a, uh, an announcement that I find just absolutely mind-boggling, announced that the reason we've decided she's going to do that is because we did a focus group, and that's what convinced us she's got to be more authentic. Well, <laughs> could anything be more inauthentic <laughs> than saying we're going to base this persona? Uh, on, on findings of a focus group. But again, this is another of these consultant-driven campaigns, and I think it, it's one of the reasons she's really having a very hard time. And I think, again, on her side of the street, it's, it's the rise of Bernie Sanders uh, is not all that surprising. I mean, he talks like a real person, you know, and uh, you know, it's amazing that he's not even a Democrat, and yet he is posing a, a serious threat. Uh, here's what we haven't talked much about and what I'm wondering might happen. I wouldn't, it would not surprise me, and I base this on no inside information or anything else, but just looking at the situation from afar. Here's someone who's not a Democrat to start with. Why wouldn't it occur to him after he's done so well that if he doesn't get the nomination, maybe he ought to run as a third party candidate? That'd be very easy. Run as a socialist. Yeah, I think he could get on a lot of a lot of state ballots. And so I think it's, I don't know if this is going to happen, but I think it's entirely possible we could see four people in the presidential race. Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, whoever the Democrats nominate, and whoever the Republicans nominate. And if you get into a situation like that, I think it's entirely possible. I think it's, it's a long shot, but I think it's possible you could see Bernie Sanders or 
Donald Trump elected because you're talking at that point of somebody winning with maybe 35% of the vote. You know, I mean, let's, let's not forget back when Bill Clinton beat uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, he got, what, 40-something percent of the vote. Bill Clinton in two elections never got 50%, never got a majority of the vote. So I think it's, you know, this whole thing is wide open about what happened. You do wind up uh, with more than one candidate. I mean, more than the two uh, major major candidates at the end. Uh, here is the part that I think we, ought, we, we, we must be concerned about, and that is, they say at every election, this is the most crucial election in modern history. I think this one may well be. I mean, I think we are at a turning point in this country. We have got to find a way to get the government working again. This is not the way that superpowers operate, and it is not the way that superpowers remain superpowers. Uh, I, I don't like to end these talks on a down note, but it's very hard for me to find something to be optimistic about uh, right now at, at this point uh, in this campaign. So that's what I'm going to be talking about while I'm here, and uh, I'll be happy now to uh, entertain your questions. So again, uh, students first, please. Okay. Going off your idea that money that money drives politics, what then can those of us who care but are not millionaires, what is actually remaining as an effective thing to do to bring about the changes that you're talking about? Well, that's that's the part that's uh, that's the hard question to answer because you know I've always said that the hardest laws to write are campaign laws and campaign finance laws. And the reason why is because the people who are writing the laws are the people who are regulating it. And I, I, I don't know how you ever change that. Maybe you get somebody on Mars to, to write it that wouldn't have, could be totally objective about things. But that is the, with this recent Supreme Court decision, I mean, it just opened the door. And, and it, it really, really said from here on in, there, there are no campaign laws, basically, uh, is what it uh, said. I don't know if you saw in the uh, New York Times the lead story today is Democrats are trying to get, uh, I guess they're going to question the Federal Election Commission, which is basically impotent, if you can't agree uh, on anything, uh, to where they can take more advantage of these super PAC laws, that where, you know, you can give, you know, these unlimited sums uh, but they're supposed to be separate from the campaign itself. <coughs> and, uh, and, you know, uh, Jeb Bush, the reason that Jeb Bush didn't declare for the presidency sooner is he wanted to raise this money uh, in the super PACs first. And once he got to $100 million, then, then he, uh, he announced, well, they're trying to do a thing now that said a candidate could meet with a super PAC if it was no more than two people. <laughs> and, you know, raise the money, coordinate, and then once they got the money, uh, then they wouldn't have anything to, well, I mean, this, this is just a facade. I mean, this, this is silly. It's not going to work. Uh, it, it's, it's very, very difficult. I don't know how. I don't know how you stop the money. If you're going to say money is speech, uh, which is what the court has ruled, 
uh, as Don McCain said, that means rich people get to speak a lot louder than poor people, and uh, but that's that's the situation uh, we're in now. I don't think uh, real meaningful reform can, can come about uh, until there are changes on the court, quite frankly. And you know, it's uh, we have these presidential campaigns, and hardly we hardly ever talk very much about who the president's going to nominate uh, to the Supreme Court, with the possible exception of talking about abortion, and, uh, which is mostly what we vote on these days uh, at Capitol Hill. You know. uh, but the most enduring legacy of most presidencies is, is who they have put on the court. I mean, that really is a legacy, and it really affects our lives long after that particular person has, uh, has left. So, I, I think just frankly, that's that's where the, the key to really meaningful reform will come about. Yes. Um, hi, I'm Brenna. I'm MVP one at the Kennedy School. Um, I worked on Wendy Davis's campaign last year, and so um, much of what you were saying about the professionalization of campaigns really stuck out to me. We had a big problem with the tension between the consultants in DC who are very highly paid and the Texas political players. Um, and so I was wondering how you think we might stem the tide of the professionalization of campaigns. Campaign finance reform seems to be one way, but um, many of these consultants have been working for 20 years in campaigns and have businesses and it's their career. So I was just wondering what you think we might be able to do to stem the tide of that. Well, I think we need to stop and think what we're getting for that. You know, and put a little common sense uh, back into all of this. But we've got some way, the politicians have got to find some way to start having more face-to-face -face dealings uh, with people and, and getting to understand who the people are that, that they represent. And, and right now, if you're trying to do this based just on that, you know, uh, looking at polls, looking at focus groups, I just think you're missing something. I mean, it, it used to be, uh, in my day, uh, when you were covering a, a campaign in uh, Tarrant County, for example, you'd go up to the courthouse and you'd talk to the sheriff. We always said the, sh the sheriff of any Texas county uh, is more in touch with voters than anybody else because he has a county car and the county pays for his gas. So he, he drives, all over, <laughs> drives all over the county. He's talking to people like that. The, the justice of the peace, the district clerk, these are people that are dealing with people, and you can go talk to them and get a feel for how people, uh, you know, what they they think about things. I mean, I think as as I was saying, you know, not only did Lyndon Johnson did we get to see him, he got to see us, and and that is not happening all too often. And while we have this gerrymandering of these uh, congressional districts now, people don't really know who their congressman is anymore. Uh, back in, going back to Tarrant County, uh, Jim Wright was our congressman for many years. Everybody in Tarrant County knew who he was. He knew most of the voters in that county. Now I think Tarrant County is part of uh, maybe four congressional districts, some of which go all the way down to the county line of Harris County, Houston, down on the Gulf Coast. Well, quite frankly, you know, there's a great deal of difference in how what voters may have on their minds in Houston and what they have on their minds uh, in, in Tarrant County. Uh, these districts, some of them are so narrow 
that, I mean, if you opened your car door, the car door would be out of the district. I mean, <laughs> and that they're all designed for a purpose to keep somebody in office. There used to be a congressman in Dallas who was fairly liberal for Dallas, and he kept inching over to Tarrant County uh, in, uh, and taking in black neighborhoods <laughs> in Tarrant County. I mean, it, you know, and now with, with the computers, uh, and that, that happens over and over and over. And uh, what happens is nobody really knows who their congressman is, so once he gets elected that first time, and then he can use the power of incumbency to raise money, and nobody's quite certain who he is till they, till they go to the polls, and they keep getting elected and getting elected and getting elected. I think we've got to figure out something that we, we can stop this, this gerrymandering. And again, I guess the, uh, the way to really do it right would be to have a constitutional amendment again. But, uh, you know, I think in, uh, in Arizona, I think they have gotten permission for a, a citizen's commission to, to draw the district lines out there. And I, I need to find out more about this because I don't know the full impact. But what needs to happen is what, what we have done in our uh, uh, base culture procedures. You know, it got to be in, in this country that it was impossible to close a military base, whether, whether it's needed or not, because the congressman who's, who, who's, the base was in his district, he would go to the congressman who had a base in another district and, and say, you know, if you'll, if you'll stay with me and help me to keep my base open, I will stay with you and help you to keep your base open. And he went on and on and on. And what they did is they, uh, they uh, formed this uh, commission. And the military would come to this commission, say which bases ought to be closed, which ought to be open. And then they would decide, and then they would present this to the Congress in one package, and the Congress would vote on it up or down, you know, and, it, 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 and sometimes the Congress would disapprove it, and when they did, they'd go back to the drawing boards and do it again. Uh, I think we need something kind of like that in our redistricting. What they do in Australia, for example, is after the, after the uh, census, a group of retired judges draws the uh, parliamentary uh, district lines, and then the parliament votes it up or down. And you know sometimes they don't approve it, but when they don't, it goes back, and you know they rejigger it. Uh, we've got to find something like that because uh, people are not being well served by the way these districts are chopped up now. And uh, as I say, just starting at the beginning, they don't they don't know who their congressman uh, is anymore. Redistricting, some sort of financial regulation. I I also think that probably we do better. If we went to nonpartisan primaries, where you just everybody runs in one primary and you pick the top two, and whether they're two Democrats or you know a Republican Democrat or, or whatever it is, I guess the counter argument to that is you would say is that the Louisiana has been doing that for many many years, and one could argue that the caliber of their candidates is better than the ones that are picked in some of the other districts. But I still think that that would help. You know, you could also do things like, you could stop raising campaign money during the legislative session. In Texas, for example, you can't, you can't, uh, an incumbent can't raise money during the session, when the legislature is in session. Uh, you might do something like that. I, for one, would favor saying, 
you couldn't hold fundraisers except in your home state. At least make these people that have the checks make them come down there. <laughs> I mean, you go in Washington now, and uh, the Congress is the only only there, uh, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and they're out of there on Thursday. So Tuesday and Wednesday, they, they're just these endless fundraisers. Um, hi, my name is Ben, and I'm a freshman at Harvard College. Hi, Ben. Um, first of all, I'd just like to say it's a real honor to listen to you speak. I watched you every Sunday morning growing up as a kid. So, so my mom was like super excited that I'm here today. I, I can't tell you how many people say, you know, my dad and I watched you. <laughs> I, I'm very confident. Um, but I, I just wanted to turn to the, the Democratic field in the election right now. There's a lot of speculation that Vice President Biden might be announcing a candidacy in the next couple of weeks here. Um, what role do you think he would play in, in the Democratic primary and in this field? Because right now, it's, the Democrats, it's really just Hillary, Hillary, Bernie, and others. You know, what, what role would Joe Biden play? Well, he would be a major player. There's no question about that. And I know that Joe Biden has wanted to run, and uh, he has told people before his son died, that he really wanted to run. He thought he could raise $50 million uh, in two weeks. Whether he can or not, I don't know. But I know, and, and he was trying to decide whether he should or not. And whether he should or not, translated means, could I win if, if I ran? And I think he was, but I know he really wanted to do it. Now, the death of his son, uh, I was pretty much convinced that he was going to run. Uh, and then I don't know if you saw him on the Colbert show the, the other night and where he said, you know, I just don't know if I can get my heart into it. And it, it was very touching. I mean, you know, we talk about authenticity. I, to me, that was authentic. And, and, uh, and, and Biden, uh, I've known him for a long time, uh, that, that's Joe Biden. But after hearing him the other night, I kind of thought, well, it's going to be awfully hard now if you do decide to run to run. But I think he's still thinking about it. Uh, but I think he would be a major force uh, if he got into this race. And I think I think he would uh, change things because he would run a much different campaign than what we're seeing now uh, with Hillary Clinton. His campaign would be much more like what you're seeing from Bernie Sanders, uh, for example. But I don't know. Uh, I kind of still in my mind thinking about my mind, yeah, he'll probably do it. But I, I think he really has gone through a very difficult time. I mean, he really, all that stuff about his son, that's that's true. Everybody that knows Joe Biden and the Biden family, I mean, they were very, very close. I mean, he loved that guy and he loved his dad and it was it was really a, a wonderful thing. He, he was a very outstanding young man. Uh, so we'll see what would happen. But if he if he gets into it, he'll he'll be a serious contender. That's for sure. Yes, sir. Uh, how about uh, another real authentic person? I'll be his VP. I'd like Elizabeth Warren. Could happen. You know, he uh, one of the first people he talked to. I, I'm sure you all saw this in the paper uh, when he began to decide. Well, am I going to do this or not? And this was before his uh, son died. He 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 had a private meeting with Elizabeth Warren. I do not know what they talked about, 
but he, he certainly sounded her out, and I, I would think that would be a live possibility, but you know, that's, that's a long way. First, he's got to decide he's going to run, and, and in the end, people pick the person they think that can help them get elected, and uh, if he thinks she's the one who could do that, but I, I think it's something to keep your eye on. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Drew. And looking forward to our possible Trump presidency, yeah. <laughs> will it be the perfect test of the legislature cooling the Lipton tea in the teacup? <laughs> and in the long term, will it lead to an erosion of the imperial presidency as the Senate and Congress work to contain President Trump? <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be very, very honest. I'm going to be authentic here. I'm going to be very honest with you. I haven't thought through it to that point. I, I, I'm still thinking about uh, what happens between now and uh, and whether or not uh, he gets the nomination. When? And, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to you on that part. <laughs> it's a very good question. I like it. There's a, a student that's sitting down back here. Ron Weintraub, I'm a retired physician and a uh, very interested citizen. Do you think there's any role this year with the 16-person uh, clown car on the Republican side and all the unhappiness with uh, Clinton on the Democrat side? Is there any place for the national conventions coming back? That's what I'm used to from the yeah. 40s and 50s and 60s. Well, I mean, uh, the, the national conventions are no longer nominating conventions. I mean, as, as we all know, they're really just kind of a, uh, uh, an infomercial, as it were. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I mean, each, each party puts its best foot forward. The country focuses on those, and, and they're, very, they're very important, but, you know, they're not, they're not what they used to be and, uh, and haven't been for a long, long time. Uh, it's very interesting. CBS right now uh, is trying to decide whether we'll even anchor the coverage, I mean, we'll cover it, but will we anchor it with an anchor booth from from there, or will we leave the anchors in New York and and uh, uh, cover it that way? And uh, which tells you just what you're talking about. Do they still play a role? I still think they play an extremely uh, important role. I, I think the most important things that happen are are the two conventions and then the presidential debates, and both of those things really. Or, or events that have the ability to move the electorate and, and move it uh, significantly, both the conventions and 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 the uh, debates. I mean, I'm I'm actually going to uh, I'm actually now a member of the debate commission, and uh, which is uh, I'm looking forward to it. it's going to be. I'm not going to moderate any more debates. I mean, I'm retired, but I'm going to be on the commission that uh, sets the rules and picks the moderators and and, and does all of that and. The one thing that uh, I have suggested is, I th and we will have the conventions earlier this year than ever, uh, but what I have urged them to do is to set the first debate as quickly as they can after the conventions, because I think the debates set the tone and will inject a serious note almost, almost immediately into the campaign. Now, whether that will hold, obviously, uh, that that will slide as we go on, but I, I hope that they they're able to do to do that. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. How's it going? Uh, thanks for coming by, Cambridge. 
research. What are your thoughts on the Electoral College at this point? Do you feel like it's outdated or needs to be modified? And just your personal thoughts. You know, I, I, uh, I'm very, uh, it's worked for a long time. And I think, I, I, I would just, bottom line, yeah, I think we ought to keep it. And I, I understand the flaws, but uh, it was an ingenious thing. When it was designed, and, and I, I still think it works. But uh, so, yeah, I think we ought to keep it. Yes, ma'am. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Yvonne Baptiste. I'm Hi, Yvonne. It's Yvonne. It's nice to meet you, sir. Um, I'm an MP2 here at the Kennedy School. And what strikes me as interesting is that you've sort of discussed all of these sort of systemic underlying issues about uh, the way in which elections are carried out in this country, but what you haven't discussed, what doesn't seem to be as much of a concern, is any particular sort of issue upon which the elections can turn. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about that. Well, I think that's a very good question. Uh, what, what are the issues on which an election concern, uh, can turn? And I think what's happened here is because you know, because of the system that we've now developed and because of the time that they have to spend on the money and all of that, uh, and then the television commercials that they, they make, the campaigns are not really about serious discussion of the issues. I mean, you know, uh, when George Bush was elected and during that entire campaign, uh, George W. Bush, there was never a mention of, of terrorism. It never came up. I think John McCain at one point made a made a speech about it, but uh, nobody thought that was uh, that was an issue, and it was not something people wanted to hear. It was kind of a downer, and so he got no attention. and And that's why I th uh, I just go back to these debates. That's why I think the debates are so important. It, it is the three nights where you really have a chance to hear the candidates speak uh, in an extended way. Uh, on on serious issues, and they'll you know they're divided into uh, into uh, foreign policy, into domestic policy, and then one which is kind of just general. But uh, exactly, I mean you're exactly right. We're not talking about what we ought to be talking about because we're talking about you know how do you zing this guy or how do you you know do that to that guy, and, and we're really not talking about the things that we very good question. Uh, two quick ones, if I may. One is on uh, debates. Is it possible for us to have debates without an audience, preferably with a panel of four or five reporters asking follow-up questions? Yeah. The second question is, am I correct in assuming that the reforms you're hoping for have to be done on a state-by-state -state basis, making them even more impossible? Yeah, that's, and that's why I'm kind of discouraged about the whole thing. It's, this is extremely difficult. Now the debates you're talking about are these primary debates, like we just saw on Fox and we're about to see Wednesday night uh, on, on CNN. Uh, you know, they have set the ground rules, and, and I mean, when you've got all these candidates, you, there's no way, you know, in two hours, anybody's gonna get to talk very much. And uh, so I don't know that these <coughs> Are all that helpful. I mean, I'm glad that we have them. I mean, it does give you a kind of a glimpse, and, uh, but anybody who thinks you're going to get a serious discussion of the issues uh, when you've got 11 people up on the stage, 
Will there be an audience in the ones that you? I, I, yes, I understand that there will be. Now, what we do when I've done the presidential debates and what you do with those, there is an audience. But we tell the audience they cannot react. They have to remain quiet, and, and they do. They they do. And uh, uh, you know they applaud at the end and all of that. And but these debates, they they seem to want an audience there just because of the uh, you know it makes for better TV. As it were. I, I think it's better if you don't have an audience. I think it's a very good point. Maybe not better TV, but maybe better for the country. Over here. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Velas Dar. I'm a student here and a fellow at the Center for Public Leadership. Um, throughout this process, independent of the candidates themselves, there seems to be this descent almost into absurdity, where candidates are allowed to take positions that are so far beyond the pale of our common discourse. Things like we don't believe in evolution will import, will deport 11 million people. There's a tradition in the U.S. of elder statesmen who can come back in and sort of rein us uh, back into sort of the normal life, and that seems to be missing. Uh, I wonder if you could speak from your perspective, you know, is there anybody that we look to as a country, whether as a cadre or as individuals, who can sort of provide that bipartisan voice of saying, we are just so far off the track that we need to come back in? Yeah, I think there are. I think there's some very good people. I mean, I think Bob Gates, who was Secretary of Defense uh, in both the Obama and uh, the previous administration. I think Leon Panetta, uh, certainly a uh, uh, responsible a voice of reason. Uh, I think there are people like that. Uh, you know, I think Henry Kissinger is a founder of wisdom. You, you will have things you would agree or disagree with. Uh, one of my favorite go-to people is Joe Califano, who was the uh, domestic affairs chief for Lyndon Johnson. And let me just tell you a little sidebar if you want to know where the government is now and where we go. Lyndon Johnson passed about 400 significant pieces of domestic legislation. I mean, we basically live in Lyndon Johnson's America. You know, whether you go back to, you know, to Medicare, to Head Start, to education, to all of these things. I mean, you know, we think about one presidency or another, well, he did this or he did that. Lyndon Johnson made a terrible mistake on the Vietnam War, but he probably accomplished more than any president in modern times, almost, well, you can't say more than, than Franklin Roosevelt, but certainly more than anyone else. Uh, and sometimes he did it, as he did in civil rights, by going against his own party. Uh, Joe Califano headed up the domestic affairs shop in the White House. You know how many people he had working for him? 16. 16 people. I think there are now 400 people in the White House alone uh, that work on domestic policy, and there are probably more people uh, on the National Security Council staff than that. And uh, I, I, uh, I think there are voices uh, that can tell us and put things in perspective. The problem is, can you get anybody to listen to? And uh, I, when I was going to face the nation, I, I, you know, in the second half of the program, I would often try to do that. Here's somebody. George Mokray, independent scholar from Central Square. A suggestion and then a question. Suggestion is that uh, Bernie Sanders may be the person building a middle, talking about how old campaigns used to be. My question concerns what you left out. 
you talked about the professionalization, professionalization of the campaigners and the mm -hmm. campaigns and all the consultants. You talked about all that money, but what does all that money buy besides the consultants? It buys ad time. You left out the media. You left out one of the legs of the chair. Could you talk about money in campaigns and the media? When I, are you talking about advertising? Or? Exactly. And, well, and, yeah. And That's where the money goes. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I, I might be, uh, as you say, uh, biting the beak of the golden goose uh, <laughs> television. Uh, but, you know, uh, campaign money has become the, the leading source of revenue in a campaign year uh, for television, especially television. Now we're into, uh, we're now we're into, uh, into social media. Which is probably more pervasive, maybe not quite as expensive, but that's where most of this money goes. It goes to making these commercials. It goes to buying the time to put them on. And again, uh, the person who works for the candidate who places the ads on television generally keeps 15 percent. Uh, that's that's how he gets paid. So, so. It's, it's been an enormous, uh, this, this has become a major American industry uh, that we've got here. And a lot of people are making a lot of money, but on the whole, I don't think it's been altogether good. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if I left that out, it wasn't, it's just because I'm getting old. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. I've heard the same rumors, and I don't think that's going to happen. I'll just, I'll just say that. I, I, I don't think. Yes? Uh, hi, Mike Eden. I'm a national security fellow here. Uh, yeah. So you made a uh, fairly strong argument for the why the elected side of the government is sort of dysfunctional. Um, and then you also gave some examples of the unelected people, the sort of some bureaucratic incompetence, whether it was the VA or the EPA thing. I guess. Do you think there's a connection between the two? I mean, given that some people are, I mean, the regulations are there, they've been passed, and people are just carrying them out, or what do you see as the root cause of this other part of the dysfunction of government that you brought up? Well, I think uh, a lot of it uh, has to do with uh, bringing people into the government that probably ought not to be there. I mean, just because you put out a yard sign during the campaign, I'm not sure that qualifies you for a position that requires some skill. And I think uh, we've seen too much of that. But what has happened, and, and I mean this against both parties, uh, the, this effort now to centralize power in the White House, uh, it's almost as if our cabinet officers uh, have become kind of ornaments. And their, their job is to uh, uh, go out and make speeches extolling the merchants of the president, whoever that happens to be. But all of the power now has been pretty much centralized in the White House. And, and, and we just see every administration, uh, it becomes more so. And the result is you have people that don't really have time to deal with things that should have been dealt with at a much, much lower level. Especially we're seeing that uh, in, in foreign policy, where uh, the fact is that when 
the administration announced we were normalizing relations uh, with Cuba. Uh, nowhere did that come as more of a surprise than most people in the State Department. <laughs> <laughs> this was something that was uh, originated in the White House uh, and it's the goal of the White House and uh, uh, a lot of people in that area in the State Department uh, didn't just And I think we've seen that again happening more and more. So by the way, I have time for one more short one more short question and relatively short answer. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, you've yeah, already got one. So. Who else? Here, this lady back here. Is there any value or possibility of shortening this campaign process? It seems to go on forever, and we're all exhausted by the time we get to the election. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've made my living for many, many years doing this. It's too long. And again, it goes back to this business about the money. And, and, and you bring in all these people that are making all this money, and the longer they can stay on the payroll, the better it is. But I mean, it's absurd. And, and I don't know how you put limits on that. You would have to have some kind of law, and then how would you enforce the law? But uh, the Brits seem to get it done yes. in six years. And they're, they're government. Maybe it's not all that great, but it's probably no better or worse than ours. And uh, I, I just wish, I think it would be a good thing all around if we could do that. Listen, I want to thank you all very much. I, I was very <laughs>